It's a privilege to be with you today. I love listening to you sing. And though there are a great many of you that I have not yet had the opportunity to meet, please know that I've prayed for you. I'm so thankful for your pastors. It was a privilege to spend some time with them last night. I'm very thankful for James and the growing friendship that we have and partnership in the gospel. Our church has prayed for you, and I bring you greetings from Christ Church Westchester. We're just outside of Philadelphia, uh, and it's a privilege to be able to come to a like-minded church on a Sunday to, to bring one of my interns, Huck, who's with me, and for my son to worship with you. He's was in here for the majority of the service. He's uh, wherever the children are now, but it's been a delight to, to be here and to have him see you all worship uh, in a very similar fashion as our congregation. I've also learned something about your area. Uh, we are very literally raising our kids in church. We, we live like above the sanctuary, and today I had to drive in D.C. traffic. My commute to work is a stairwell, so everything that you all do to get here on a Sunday morning, may the Lord bless you. All right, so I'm so glad that you're here, or Sunday afternoon. May the Lord bless you. Uh, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter. Our time together this afternoon will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. Um, I'm going to ask you to look with me in particular at verses 22 through 25 uh, as we begin reading in just a few moments. Uh, but as uh, before we begin, just one of the things that might be helpful if you're not very familiar with First Peter is Peter is writing to a group of marginalized Christians who are now living in exile. Uh, they are being persecuted for their faith, but not really the type of persecution that we typically think of when we hear that word. We almost only think of physical persecution, something that's uh, leading to very arduous pain or to somebody losing their life. But what these people are experiencing, most likely at this point in the first century, is alienation because of their faith in Christ. They're being slandered, they're being mis misrepresented, they're being mistreated because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And Peter writes to these believers to encourage them. And as he does, he gives them three metaphors in the section that we're in right now. We'll see that he was speaking to them about becoming a Christian, what it means for the individual to be converted. But now he gives these metaphors of a family in chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. And then this image of the body of Christ as a temple in chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 2, verse 8. And then this image of them as a people or a corporate entity in chapter 2, verse 9 to chapter 2, verse 12. And as he gives them this, these images, he's kind of rounding out their understanding of what it means to be an individual who's brought in to something much bigger than their own personal faith encounter with Christ. I'm going to begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. I'm going to ask you to follow along with me. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... And he speaks to us with the authorities of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk 
that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whom we know as Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in the word of God. We thank you, Father, for this word. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we know that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we are hearing and have heard read and have already sung about and prayed about today. We ask, Father, that you would help us to focus our minds on your word. I pray that you would guard my mouth as I preach your word. I pray, Father, for those who are here with us who might not yet be believers in your Christ as he has been revealed in your word. Father, we ask today that they would hear the good news of the gospel and that they would be born again by the Spirit of God. And Father, for all the believers that are present today, we ask that they would be built up in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we ask this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. I want you to suppose with me that a special microphone were wired to pick up the sentences just playing at or below the awareness level of our mental tapes this afternoon as we entered into the sanctuary. If we were eavesdropping because of those special microphones, what would we have heard? Oh no, there's James. If he sees me, he'll ask me why I haven't responded to any of his emails. I better move in and get a seat. I wish my spouse weren't away this afternoon. I'm really uncomfortable going to church alone and without them. I'll just sit at the back and leave as soon as the service is over. I sure hope the preaching's better this week than it's been the last few weeks. This should be a really great day. No work needs to be done. I like our church, and the gnats were on at 1.30. That gave me time to go to lunch, watch some baseball, and come to church. I like being a Christian. I wonder if I should keep coming to this church. I really haven't made very many friends. Well, I'll keep praying about it, and let's see how it goes today. Look at that happy family. It really hurts when I think that my kids are grown up and mixed up. I wish I could have just a few years back, but I can't start crying now. Here comes one of the elders. If all of these people just knew what I did last night or last week, they wouldn't greet me as I came in here today. With tapes like these playing in our minds as we gather, the chances are very slim that any real love will be demonstrated as we gather together as the body of Christ, because we are so much more focused on ourselves than on those around us. As Peter shifts from a focus on the individual, in chapter 1, verses 3, all the way to chapter 1, verse 21, he now shifts to a focus on the community, and we see that the problems that we wrestle with today are just as true as they were in the first century, as he urges these persecuted Christians to love one another. It is so hopeful of a message because the gospel, which has the power to save us, the apostle tells us, is actually the ground of our mutual love for one another as believers in Jesus Christ. Peter tells us because of the gospel, there is hope for a loving church. And as he does, he gives us three reasons to love one another and three ways to love one another. Our outline will be very simple. Reason one, two, and three, way one, two, and three. Notice reason number one. Look with me at verse 22. Having purified your souls 
by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. They've purified their souls by obeying the truth. Therefore, verse 22, they are to love one another. Peter actually grounds the command to love one another on their conversion, having purified your souls. How do they purify their souls? How do they do that? Verse 22, by their obedience to the truth of the gospel. If you go back and start reading through the epistles in the New Testament, the letters in the New Testament, one of the things that you will see if you are reading the epistles carefully is that the gospel is often referred to as the truth. Galatians chapter 2, verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Peter tells us that the past action of conversion to the truth of the gospel actually has some ongoing consequences for these believers in the present, even though they are being slandered even though they are being misrepresented, even though they are being mistreated, even though they are being oppressed, even though they are being ostracized and alienated, the difficulties that they face, the sins that others have committed against them, the hardships that they personally have experienced, the pain that they are feeling does not exempt them from loving one another. It does not exempt them from doing spiritual good to other believers in the Christian community. It does not exempt them from caring for the believers that are in their church any more than it exempts you and me. But isn't that often how we feel when we've been wronged? As if all of the sudden, We are no longer required to love, and our response seems justified when we consider how we have been treated, and it seems justified as soon as we begin to try to explain to other people how we have been treated. You see, Peter knows our default tendency is to turn inward rather than to turn outward toward others in love, especially when we're suffering, particularly when we're hurting. So he summons a suffering church to mainstream Christian life by calling them to love one another because of their conversion to Christ by means of the gospel. And in so doing, he actually reveals to them the goal of their conversion. The goal of their conversion was not simply their personal encounter with Jesus Christ, but it is to love other believers genuinely because of how they have been loved as a result of the gospel. This is how they will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. But it's not a love for others in general. It's not, it is a love for fellow believers in particular, members of these churches, which is why he says, verse 22, brotherly love, Philadelphian. 
I grew, uh, live now and raise my children in an area right outside of Philadelphia. And sometimes in some places when you're downtown in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it looks like anything except a city of brotherly love. And sometimes among some Christians in some churches, the church looks like anything except a community characterized by love. You see, Peter knew firsthand that ugliness can occur among and by true believers. And it grieved him to see it among these Christians. Their response to their hardship, their response to their trials, their response to their pain was to treat other people similarly and analogously. And Peter calls them to turn away from that. He saw something was seriously wrong in the church and how they were conducting themselves. And he concluded that the missing element in all of their behavior was love. So he commands them to love one another. He calls them to love one another because of what Christ has done for them. The indicative of what God has done for them or has promised to them in Christ now generates a current action of love for fellow believers in Christ. Believers, Peter teaches us, are to be known not only for their endurance in trial and hardship. Believers, Peter tells us, are not simply to be known by their ability to articulate strong Christian doctrine. Believers are not simply to be known, Peter tells us, by showing up to services and serving regularly. They are to be known by the unwavering love of the gospel that grounds their mutual love for one another, even when they suffer, especially when they suffer. Because of the gospel... There is hope of a loving church, reason number one. Reason number two, look with me in verse 23. Love one another, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. They are to love one another because, verse 23, they have been born again. In verse 22, conversion was described as them purifying their lives, by their obedience to the truth of the gospel. But now in verse 23, careful readers notice, their conversion is described as God causing them to be born again. In verse 22, the command of love was grounded on their obedience to the gospel. Now in verse 23, the command of love is grounded in God's saving action. God has granted them new life, so they are to throw off old life patterns, and they are to put on new life patterns. God has granted them new life, so they are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and they are to put on the uh, deeds of life. They are to live like different people because of God's work in them. Peter's reason is very simple in verse 23. They are to love one another because God has loved them. Or as John says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then verses 19 through 21 of 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. 
Anyone who says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Fellow members of New Covenant Baptist Church, do you love one another? Do you love one another enough to pray for one another? Do you love one another enough to serve one another? Do you love one another enough to disagree with one another? Do you love one another enough to forbear with one another when other people are annoying you? Do you love one another enough to give up your rights for one another? Do you love one another enough to be inconvenienced by one another? Do you love one another enough to forgive one another so that you can approach the Lord's table with one another? You see, Peter is not commanding us to learn how to tolerate one another. Peter is not telling us how to deal with other people's faces on Sunday. Peter is not telling us to learn how to put up with other members of the church. Peter is not simply saying, learn how to endure one another or coexist with one another. That's the love of the world. Peter is calling us to something much more personal and intimate and challenging and difficult and rewarding and beautiful. The apostle is commanding these Christians, us, fellow members of local churches, to love one another. And love makes us vulnerable. It is hard to love other people because it opens us up to this world of pain. The very people that we spend so much energy loving and caring about and serving and ministering to are the very people that often have the ability to hurt us and to grieve us and to sin against us. But the only way to protect ourselves from that kind of pain is to not love at all. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says it like this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up, carefully round with your hobbies and your little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Friends, perhaps you're here today and you find it hard to hear Peter's command to love one another because you know that you have hurt someone so deeply that you cannot even imagine being forgiven by the person that you have sinned against, much less loved. Peter, this apostle, knew exactly what you feel like. He knew exactly what it was like to feel unforgivable, to feel unlovable. But by the Sea of Tiberias, he was forgiven by the very person that he had sinned grievously against, Jesus Christ. And now, this side of the resurrection, writing to these believers who are being persecuted, forgiven, restored, loved, this same apostle confidently calls all of these Christians to love because he now knows that there is no sin that you can commit that can send you outside of the reach of God's love. It is impossible for you to sin in such a way that God would be unwilling to forgive you. 
But that is exactly what the enemy of your soul wants you to think. That your sin is so uniquely heinous that God would not forgive it if you repent. Friends, that is a lie. That is exactly what the enemy wants you to believe. That your sin is of such a unique kind that the church would never receive you. That is a lie if you repent. Friends, it is possible to be forgiven of, restored from, loved after the most heinous, Christ-diminishing, family-destroying, community-disrupting sins. And the Apostle Peter knew it. The Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. A legalist, a murderer, a blasphemer said it just like this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. God saved Peter, and God saved the Apostle Paul. And friends, God will save and forgive you if you repent of your sins and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners. Jesus Christ loves to forgive repentant sinners. Jesus Christ came to forgive repentant sinners. He lived. He died. He substituted himself in the place of the people that he wants to forgive to bear all of the wrath that they should bear so that it, they would be forgiven of all of the sins for which they should be justly condemned and judged forever so that they might know the forgiveness of sins. And the astonishing beauty and truth of the gospel is so simple. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then just two verses later, Beloved, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Believer, wrestling with your sin, unwilling to bring it into the light, Hear the truth of the gospel afresh today and repent. Find one of your pastors. Find me after the service. Find one of the members of this church. Confess that sin and let the mercy of the gospel wash you afresh with the power and truth of God's forgiveness in Christ. An unbeliever, non-Christian who has gathered with us today, we are so glad that you've come. I'm not the pastor here. I'm not regular, regularly here. But it is a privilege to have you in worship with us today. We invite you to believe this truth of the gospel. To come to this forgiving Christ. Because the reality is that you have something in common with everybody else in this room. You are a sinner by birth. You are a sinner by choice. You stand in great need of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he offers to sinners. And we are here to tell you today that if you come to him, he will forgive you, friend. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. What will prevent you from coming to him today? Is it pride that people perhaps already think you to be a Christian? Friend, cast off that pride and come to Christ. Is it fear that people would begin to judge you for what you are doing to sin against God and sin against others? Friends, there's no fear here. Absolutely everybody's a sinner. And absolutely everybody here needs this gospel. So cast that off. Do not believe that lie. Is it that your sin is deceiving you to think that this sin is different and God wouldn't forgive it? Friend, the enemy of your soul is deceiving you. Come to Christ. Jesus loves to forgive sinners. But perhaps you're here today and you find it hard to hear Peter's command to love one another 
because you cannot even fathom loving someone who has been so unloving towards you. Friends, Jesus knew exactly what you feel like. He knew what it was like to feel scorned by his family, abandoned by his friends, betrayed by the disciple writing this letter, failed by his government, mocked by all of his countrymen, and yet, from the instrument of his torture, Jesus Christ said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then on the evening of his resurrection, the very first thing he said to his disciples, this disciple included, was peace be with you in John chapter 20, verse 19. Before he said to them, if you forgive the sins of anyone else, their sins are forgiven them. Now I want you to imagine with me for a moment what that was like. All of the disciples had fled. All of the disciples had betrayed Jesus. All of them had abandoned him, even though they had promised that they would not do that. And one of the most astonishing truths, in my opinion, in teachings in the Gospels, is that we have no record of Jesus chastising them, coming in and saying, I told you I was going to raise from the dead. We have no record of Jesus treating them as their sins deserve, saying, look, I've forgiven you, but you know what? You just need to be reminded you're a moron. We have no record of Jesus coming alongside them and saying, you had such weak faith, and it was so pathetic. Instead, Jesus comes, and he forgives them, and he extends them mercy, and he says, peace be with your unsettled soul. Peace be with you. Without so much as mentioning their sins against him, Jesus forgives them, and in so doing teaches us how we are to live with other people. He empowers us by his example and with his gospel, with a message of forgiveness. Can you then fail to forgive others by withholding forgiveness from them? Who are you withholding forgiveness from today? Unforgiveness is the acid that will destroy its own container. First Peter and James tell us, Love covers a multitude of sins and offenses. New birth, Peter tells us, is the reason believers are to love one another. Because believers have been born again by means of, verse 23, the imperishable seed of the living and abiding word of God. The invincible, incorruptible seed by which we are born again is the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. It never loses its relevance. It is imperishable. It was relevant in the first century. It's relevant in the 21st century. It's relevant for Westchester. It's relevant for Rockville. It's relevant for young. It's relevant for old. It's relevant for men and women from this country and from every country. It is relevant for every single person on planet earth. The living word of God produces life Life that is abiding, life that is free, life that is abundant, and life that will never cease. Which is why this is such a great teaching. And it is so hopeful of a message. Because of the gospel, there is hope of a loving church. Reason number one, reason number two, reason number three. Look with me in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, careful readers notice the word for at the beginning of verse 24, and all of the English majors, which notice that this typically signifies cause, not reason. But because it is difficult to see how the Old Testament citation from Isaiah 
chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, actually grounds what preceded it. It makes better sense to see it as a restatement of the reason to love, given in verse 23, which I believe actually makes it another reason. So the third reason to love, then, is that the word of God endures forever. Peter restates and reinforces that reason with the quotation from Isaiah 40, where comfort is now being proclaimed to Israel because God will once again work to restore them from their exile in Babylon. And the good news for people who have been exiled because of their sin, the good news for people who are experiencing hardship because of their faith in God's uh, covenant promises, the good news for Israel and the good news for these elect exiles and the good news for you and for me, according to people, uh, Peter, is that God always fulfills his promises. And the nations of the world that seem so strong cannot resist his promised word to deliver his people from exile. Such nations are like grass, the apostle tells us. They are like the flower of grass, which perish when the winds of the Lord's providence blow upon them. Grass and flowers are beautiful in springtime and summertime, but when winter arrives, no one would ever know that they were beautiful or that they had thrived. By quoting Isaiah 40, Peter is reminding these exiles that the persecutors of their day, who seem invincible, are not. Their glory is short-lived, but their love for one another has eternal significance. So he says, verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. Isaiah supports Peter's reason in verse 23 by helping us see that the imperishable, living, and abiding word of the Lord has present relevance for these believers to conduct themselves in their exile. And Peter tells us, verse 25, that that relevant word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord in Isaiah, which represents the promise that God will restore his people from exile and fulfill all of the promises that he made to Abraham, is ultimately fulfilled in the gospel of God's love displayed in the person of Jesus Christ that is now being proclaimed in all of these churches throughout Asia Minor, that is now being proclaimed here in Rockville, Maryland, that is now being proclaimed throughout all the nations of the earth. The new exodus, the return from exile, the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises, the command to love one another become a reality through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news for Zion, the good news for Jerusalem is that God will come and fulfill his promises to Israel. And friends, he has. The promises in Isaiah are fulfilled in the preaching of the gospel. The command from Peter is motivated by the gospel. It is the gospel from the abiding word of the Lord that gives them hope of deliverance and assurance of things hoped for. And it points them forward, farther out. Instead of looking at their circumstances and what is taking place around them, Peter calls them to love one another and to look farther out and to remember we have a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who has moved history to save our souls. It is the gospel of the abiding word of the Lord that has caused them to be born again to new life. And it is the gospel from the abiding word of the Lord that motivates them to love one another. Friends, we will only love our enemies. We will only love those who are unworthy of love. We will only love those who are hard to love and difficult to love when we are motivated by the gospel. Do you find yourself struggling to love somebody else right now? Consider the gospel. The gospel that teaches us about the love of God for sinners like you and like me. 
And remember afresh, when it's difficult to love somebody, that perhaps you're difficult to love for somebody else. The gospel, the good news, the message of Christ's death and resurrection for sinners, its power to save, is the ground for our mutual love for one another. Those are the three reasons that Peter gives. But how are we to do this? How are we to love? Peter knew that we would need help. So he gives us three ways to love. And they are all found in verse 22, which is the anchor of the whole passage. Way number one, sincere love. Look again in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere love, love one another. A sincere love is a genuine love. It's an honest love. It is a love that is made evident not only in the public gathering, but in private prayer. It is a love that is not only made public, uh, made public when people are in front of you, but behind closed doors when no one else is around. Brothers and sisters, fellow members of this church, let me ask you, is your love for one another genuine? Would the words of your mouth and the meditations of your hearts manifest a sincere, genuine, heartfelt love for other believers in this church? Or is your love only showcased in public when other people are around? Friends, love that is only on display when other people are around is not love. Love that is only made evident when other people are there to hold you accountable is not love. We are to love at all times and in all ways, in our actions and with our words and with our thoughts. We are to love at great cost to ourselves because of the great cost our God has gone to show love to us. Friends, let love among you be genuine. Sincere love. Way number two, brotherly love. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a brotherly love, love one another. Brotherly love is familial love. And the hard part of familial love is that it requires us to love and to gather and to serve and to care for and to minister to others even when, sometimes especially when, they've wronged us. Precisely because they're in our family. One of the difficult things about a big family, when everybody gets together, is that the difficult people in the family still come when everybody gathers together. But they're still part of the family, even though they're the difficult people. Friends, we are to love everybody in the family. A healthy family learns how to love and to let love cover a multitude of offenses. Because life together is more important than your own individual rights. Friends, that is not the same as allowing uh, someone to abuse you or oppress you or manipulate you or mistreat you. I just want to speak on behalf of your pastors and say if that is you, they would love to serve you and help you. And if you are in a situation like that, you need to know that that is not love. It is always wrong. And this church would be glad to walk alongside you and to help you walk out of situations like that. But what Peter is calling these people to is to learn how to lay down all of the things that they hold dear, all of their preferences, for the good of others and the expansion of the gospel, even when they're suffering, especially when it's difficult. Sincere love, brotherly love, way number three, earnest love. Look at verse 22 again. 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. The earnest lover seeks to outdo others in showing love. Earnestly, fervently, displaying love and affection regardless of how much love and affection is reciprocated. Brothers and sisters, it is a poor lover indeed who waits for love to be initiated before it is reciprocated. Or just to think about it in this context if you're married. Husbands, if you're only going to tell your wife you love her after she says that she loves you, then you're never going to be a true and faithful lover of your wife. Parents, if you're never going to tell your children that you love them until they walk into the room and say, I love you, you're the best. You're never going to love your child in a true and faithful, loving and sacrificial way. Members of this church, if you're only going to serve people because they've served you, you're never going to be able to fulfill your covenant commitment to love one another. And if you are here serving to be served or loving to be loved, friend, you have it so backwards. The Savior served when we did not serve him. The Savior loved when we did not love him. He loved when we hated him. He served when we ignored him. And yet he served and loved us anyways. Friends, the gospel calls us to serve and to love at great cost to ourselves. And for you in particular, members of this church in a church plant, where there are sometimes some unique needs, you're going to have to serve and to love, to minister at great cost to yourselves, sometimes when it's challenging and difficult. Brothers and sisters, persist in that earnest love. All of this, the apostle tells us, is to be done from a pure heart, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Not for gain, not for attention, not for promotion, not for advancement, not be, to become an elder or to become a deacon, not to become an intern, not to be supported by the church, not to be recognized, not to be sent out, but from a pure heart made holy by the gospel for the good of other people. One of the things that keeps us from loving others like this is the fear that somehow if we pay the price and love other people in this way, we're going to be the losers. We're going to be the people who miss out why other people get what they need. They're going to be greatly loved, and we're going to be unloved. They're going to be greatly served, and we're not going to be served, so we're not going to pay the price, the tax of serving and loving other people. Friends, you will never lose out when you give up the bright things the world has to offer for the eternal things that the gospel offers to us in Christ. If we love one another earnestly from a pure heart, it will be costly. It will be difficult. It will require you to give more than you want to give at times when you don't want to give it in ways that you'd rather not have to do it. But you will never miss out on the glory that is extended to those in Christ as you build something that lasts and remains forever. Do you want to change Rockville, Maryland? You want to change the broader community of Washington, D.C. and Maryland? Help build a loving church and change the world in doing so. The power to overcome this fear is the gospel by which we are born again through the word of God that will endure forever. Because of the gospel, there is hope for a loving church. Four final applications for us. Number one, love defines 
how to act when facing conflict. Love, as it is defined like this in the scripture, defines how to act when in conflict. When we are in conflict with other people, we are not to trust our emotions and our immediate reactions, but we are to consider the gospel and look at how the Savior loved us and how that love is to be a catalyst and an example for how we love one another in the Christian community. Number two, love does not seek revenge for wrongs suffered. We are not to love other people after we have made sure that they have suffered enough or paid enough of a price. We are not to remind them of what they have done against us. We are to love and not seek revenge, and we are to trust that the Lord will deal with that on the day of judgment. Friends, one of the reasons that we don't love like this is because we don't trust that the Lord will deal with it. But he has promised that he will deal with it. So we are to love. Number three, love overcomes evil through prayer, forbearance, and kindness. My former pastor used to say when people would come and they would complain about somebody else, before he would listen to it and really entertain, he would ask them, have you prayed for them for 30 days? Now, there's not something magical about 30 days. What he was trying to say, if you care about it enough, you will pray about it. And to pray for opportunities to be reconciled and to extend love and to show love and to receive love from other people. Love overcomes evil through prayer, forbearance, and kindness. Fourth, love denies self for the good of others. Love denies self for the good of others. Love for God and love for one another will help you when you're dealing with hidden hatred against a fellow member of this church. Love for God and love for one another will help you when you're suspicious of another brother or sister in Christ because they don't really live life the way that you think that they should live life. And they haven't made all of the decisions that you think you would have made if you were them. And they haven't done all of the things that you think that they should be doing to model what it's like to be a healthy church member. Love for God and love for one another help you when you're frustrated with how other people in your congregation are responding to world events. But the things that they say, or the things that they post, or the things that they do, or the places that they go. Love for God and love for one another help you when you're hiding sin and prohibiting your ability to love others because of it. Friends, you are prohibiting God's work of grace in your life when you're hiding sin. Not only are you hiding sin from God, but you're prohibiting God's church to minister to you in that moment as you walk away from and out of sin. Friends, just think what would happen if just 10 believers who gathered here regularly deliberately chose to play a different tape when they walked through those doors on Sunday afternoon. Instead, play tapes like this. I know many people in our congregation are burdened and they're hurting and they're overwhelmed and they're tired. To whom can I speak words of love and encouragement today? To whom can I sit beside and remind of the beauty of the gospel? To whom can I serve today? Can you imagine how different the assembly would be as we begin to experience the reality of love and the blessing of encouragement that would radiate out from this place into this community? May it be so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these friends.
these brothers and sisters, these men and women. And I pray, Father, that you would cultivate among them love, genuine, earnest, sincere love, love for God in Christ and love for one another. I pray that you would build them up in the faith of the gospel as we see the eternal day of God drawing near. I pray that the love among them would be palpable, that it would be experienced in their praying, in their singing, through the preaching, in the way that they serve one another, how they live life together, how they encourage one another in the gospel. I pray, Father, that the unbelieving world would begin to see a community transformed by the love of the gospel and that they would look from the outside to the inside of this church and that they would see something different because of the love of God in Christ taking root among the believers here and that you would bring revival to this community so that people who have not yet believed in Christ would trust in Christ and would be born again by this word. Father, we ask that you would do a good work and we ask all of this. In the name of Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, we pray, amen.